Welcome to the SCORE Small Business Success Podcast, Been There, Done That. To get free mentoring services, as well as to see the wide variety of resources available for small businesses, visit our website at www.score.org or call 1-800-634-0245. And now, here's your host, Dennis Zink. Episode number 41, Insurance, Emergencies and Disasters. Fred Dunnier joins me today in our studio as co-host, SCORE mentor, and our audio engineer. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Dennis. Again, we have Peter Hedberg returning as our guest today on Been There, Done That. Hello, Peter. Hi, guys. How are you? Great. Peter Hedberg started his insurance career in 2003 at Hayes Company in the Midwest. Peter handled management liability lines and professional and privacy insurance. In 2013, he moved to New York and joined the underwriting side at Hiscox, a global specialty insurance company, which is based in London. He currently manages professional and privacy liability insurance for the Northeast region of Hiscox. Peter, how does a business owner's policy protect small business during an emergency? Well, I think it's really important to note that there's a difference between an insurance emergency and filing a claim. So I think a lot of people think that if there is an emergency or something happening in the immediate that they have to call their insurance company. A classic example is, say, a homeowner's policy where... Uh, let's say you had a storm that you know tore a hole in your roof or something like that, and people think, oh, I shouldn't touch that. The insurance company is going to want to take control of this whole thing, or I don't want to jeopardize my insurance somehow, so I'm just going to let the water keep pouring in. Um, that's an emergency, and it's okay to take the necessary steps to protect yourself and the property in that case. So whether that be put a tarp up on your roof or something that prevents the water from continuing to come in, Those are okay things to do. The insurance company wants you to take action so that you don't have further loss, obviously. They also want you to take action to make sure that everyone stays safe. That includes dialing 911 if somebody's hurt or something's on fire or something to that effect. And then the the claim filing process can begin once the crisis or the emergency is over. I think it's important that people don't jeopardize further loss by worrying what the insurance company is going to do. Again, that's we bring that up because there is. There's a distinction between when you file a claim and when there's an emergency. So, Peter, once I've solved the immediate crisis, what do I do? Well, let's say you're in a position where you need an additional place to work or an alternative place to work because where you typically work, and that could be out of your home if you're a small business, is unavailable to you. What you can do is when you get in touch, that this is when you want to start filing the claim. This is when you want to start the claim process because that's when you're going to get an insurance adjuster who's going to recommend an alternative place to work or make those arrangements or even ask you if you have alternative arrangements and what the cost is going to be so that they can start directly reimbursing you for those additional costs to have an alternative place to work. Peter, once the insurance adjuster has helped you get settled in, there could be all sorts of other things going on, lawsuits and, and, and who knows what. What do you do about those things? That's a good question. So there's, there's a huge difference between when you have a property-style emergency where you need an alternative place to work or there's a fire versus when you're actually staring at a lawsuit. I always joke in the, in the movies, they always have these characters who, you know, deliver service of suit and, you know, they ask you your name and you identify who you are. And then all of a sudden they throw a lawsuit at you. It, it does work sometimes like that, but most of the time it just shows up in the mail when it, when it comes to a business. 
And you're staring at this lawsuit, and I think a lot of people's first inclination is to call a lawyer and say, oh, what do I do? I've got to respond to this in a certain amount of time. Well, every lawsuit has a certain specified period of time that you have in which to respond. So it's very important to file the claim and start that process as soon as you can because the adjuster is probably going to be the one that determines what lawyer that's going to be. Now, if you have a personal attorney that you like and trust, that's okay to call them and consult, but they may not actually be used by the insurance. So you may bear that risk or that cost on your own. I suspect a pretty good percentage of the time they, it ends up being insurance company lawyer against insurance company lawyer. It's, it's certainly very possible, although um, if you're being sued or somebody's bringing a plaintiff attorney action at you, usually those are plaintiff attorneys. And um, in the world of lawyers, there's a really, really bold line that's drawn between who's a defense attorney and who's a plaintiff attorney. And if you can imagine, the insurance companies don't often like to employ people who are plaintiff attorneys as defense attorneys. But uh, when I was an insurance agent, I did. I had a very interesting experience where my insured was a construction firm and one of their key people overnight took a bunch of equipment and took a bunch of people and started up an alternative company in another state and then bid on the same job that they were bidding that the the previous his previous company was bidding on. And so it was a classic non-compete uh, tortious interference claim. And so they decided to sue this guy who left over the weekend and took all this stuff and started an alternative company. Well, then he counterclaimed and he claimed defamation and all these other things. And so all of a sudden, the, the attorney they hired to go after this guy was also defending the company as well against these things. Wow. And so it was, it was very strange because we had to work with the insurance company to figure out what percentage of the work the attorneys were putting in was based on the plaintiff action versus the defense action. And it got very messy. And of course, we were dealing with an insurance company that didn't like the fact that the attorney billed on the quarter hour. They wanted them to bill on the 10th of the hour. I mean, there's all these things that play into it. But that's when it's nice to have uh, a good uh, insurance agent as well, because that insurance agent will be advocating for you. But to the original point, yes, if you're staring at a lawsuit, that's a very good time to call the insurance company. It's a great first step. Do you have a certain amount of time that you can do that? Yeah, so most of the time when the way the insurance companies write their policies, they want you to report that claim as soon as practicable. And that's the key word is practicable. Now, for a lot of attorneys that read and critique insurance policies, they don't like the term practicable because they think that that just is going to be something the insurance company interprets for themselves, especially since attorneys oftentimes have to deal with what are called late reports when somebody was aware of the claim but didn't tell the insurance company or told them too late. But really, practically, for small business, when we're talking about as soon as practicable, as soon as practical means when you know it's a claim, you have to call it in. So a great example is if you're staring at a lawsuit, that's a claim. So as soon as practicable means the next business day or whenever, or if, let's say, you're on vacation and you can't turn it in for three days or something, okay, fine, it's three days. It wasn't practicable. You were on vacation or you didn't know about it, i.e., the lawsuit arrived and it somehow got thrown in with the mail or was mixed up or something. It, you know, it, Again, practical means as soon as you're aware and as soon as you're able, you have to turn that claim in. If it's beyond a certain amount of time, does it? Uh, will they just not pay the claim if it's like over twenty days or something? Or 
So there's no real there's no real set period of time. Again, we use that word practicable, and that's kind of it's a little squishy. But a good example of a denied claim for a late report is, and I had this happen as an insurance agent. I had one of my customers who had received an EEOC notice, and the EEOC notice, uh, you know, was handed down by the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, and they said that whoever this person is that you fired, we have determined that it's possible that you fired them for uh, race or age or creed or something of that regard. And there's a hearing and you need to attend it. And this was misinterpreted by the mailroom and it was thrown in a file box somewhere that was never seen. And so two years later, they received a fine in the mail that said, we sent you a, we sent you a notice. You didn't show up to the hearing here. You know, we're levering a fine against you. And uh, the insurance company said, well, you received it and you guys didn't file it correctly. You guys put it into a box somewhere that, you know, it, no one ever saw it again. Well, you can't come to us now. Like that's, that's a late report. As a business, you should be aware when those things arrive and <laughs> what to do with them. So let's talk about what kind of disasters there are today that, are, that you're typically seeing. I mean, there's a lot of weather issues right now. Um, so I imagine you're seeing tornadoes and hurricanes and, and earthquakes and are those the main ones or and fires? What else is there? Yeah. So it's funny. When you think about the insurance industry and you think about it politically, it's a finance industry and you can you can oftentimes expect some more conservative viewpoints politically. And there's still some contention about the science behind global warming. And, and I can respect that and that's fine and everything. But if it's one thing that insurance actuaries don't joke about – it's the fact that global warming is real <laughs> and that they believe in it and that the incidence of fires, hurricanes and other weather related events is the, the frequency is increasing now. And so that's what we're seeing a lot of. And a couple of big things happened uh, recently in the insurance industry in the last 10 or 15 years that have really changed the way that insurance approaches risk. The, the first one was actually September 11th, which isn't related to global warming. I'll, or I'll go back to that. September 11th was, first of all, it was called an act of war by the president of the United States at the time. And a lot of people did consider it to be an act of war. But those words are very powerful when they come to insurance language because most insurance, if, if not all insurance, excludes war. War is not a good risk ever. You never want to insure it. There's just no, there's no reason to. But the way they define war in a lot of these insurance policies is that it is uh, going to war with a state or a state actor. Well, if you remember Al-Qaeda, who is held responsible for 9-11, uh, Al-Qaeda is not a state. ISIS claims to be a state, even though they're not a recognized country. But Al-Qaeda certainly wasn't. Al-Qaeda was a terrorist network of individuals. And so a lot of insurance companies, both because it would have been very, very bad from a public relations standpoint, but also because I think it would have been hard to hold up in court, did not deny September 11th uh, as a claim. They paid it. And in some cases, they paid it in full, but in other cases, they didn't. And it's very interesting because, again, it comes down to wording. So the actual powers in September 11th were struck by two planes. They went down independently because, again, they were struck by two planes. Now, when people build property insurance, for very large structures like the World Trade Center. They stack it. They build what we call towers, towers of insurance. So different insurers take different hunks of that tower. The 
the first three layers of the insurance were, were interpreted that an occurrence occurred two times with the towers. And that's important because two limits of insurance were then paid. So it was the difference between $1 billion and $2 billion, only it was a lot more than that. But that only applied to the first three layers of the insurance. The next layers of insurance used different wording, and they went to court over what the difference in occurrence language was. And the court decided that occurrence meant both towers. So it was only one occurrence after that. So the rest of the insurers on that tower only paid $1.1 billion versus $2.2 billion. And again, it hung on the definition of word, and it was, it was litigated uh, it, it was litigated because of that. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. So, so the reason I bring it up is 9-11 was a completely unexpected event. There wasn't enough money in the insurance industry to pay for that necessarily. So a lot of the reinsurers who pick up the loss in excess of a certain amount for all of what we call these primary insurers, primary insurers being the one that everybody typically works with, a lot of those reinsurers ended up going out of business. They wrote a check for everything they had and they closed the doors. And so there was this new era of insurance when we realized there wasn't enough capacity. So several new insurance companies started to come around. But then also, guess what the insurance companies started to do? Most of them started to exclude terrorism because they didn't want to necessarily be exposed to that again. And so the federal government realized that not many people wanted to insure terrorism. It's a tough business. So the specialty markets picked up some of it, but they only picked it up after the federal government stepped forward and signed a major piece of legislation for our industry called TRIA, which is the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. And then later it was called TRIPRA, which is when they renewed it. What that basically says is the insurance industry is responsible for the first $100 million of a terrorist event. And then the federal government picks up the rest. Now, again, you see this, and we'll, we'll talk about this more. You see this with certain types of risk. The federal government steps in when no other, when the private market doesn't want to touch it because there could be no profitability in it. So terrorism is now very well insured. It's insured by the federal government. And then the first $100 million is insured by several different private insurance companies around the country. Again, hung on the, the, the definition of the word occurrence, right? That's that's fascinating. I didn't know that. And uh, you know, I know flood insurance is is insured by the government. You have to buy flood insurance from the government. There's no. It doesn't first go to insurance companies and then the Fed step in uh, in a secondary market. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Insurance companies used to cover flood way back in the day. And when I say way back in the day, I mean like sixty or seventy years ago, back when they thought they could make it profitable. They soon found out that flood is never profitable. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to underwrite. And if the private insurance market did actually underwrite it and put out policies, it'd be, it'd be so exorbitantly expensive that no one would purchase it. So the federal government stepped in, and it's called the NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program. And if you were a homeowner in areas prone to flood, um, you know, the coastal Florida, obviously Louisiana, and some of those other uh, states that we've read about in the news quite a bit. Um, and even back where I'm from, I'm from Minnesota, the Red River Valley in North Dakota and Minnesota flooded perennially. And it used to only be a one in 100 year event or a one in 300 year event. 
Is that what they mean when they say it's a hundred year floodplain or something? They're talking about it, that they estimate that it's going to, that there could be a flood every hundred years. Is that what that means? Exactly. So when they put together tables on floodplains, the GIS service and several different private organizations also put together these maps. They determine the rate or the frequency with which these catastrophic floods will happen. Now, with climate change, we've actually seen those tables start to lose some of their credibility because we're seeing them more often. We're seeing four or five one in 100 year floods within a 10 year period or something like this, right? And um, in those areas, if you've mortgaged your house, the bank is going to require you to buy flood insurance. And the only place you can buy it is from the government. Now, there's this vicious cycle with the NFIP right now, which is really challenging. Part of that is because the flood insurance itself is actual cash value, which means if your house is flooded, they're not going to pay you to replace your house. They're going to pay you what your house was likely worth on the, you know, on the open market or uh, according to a uh, amortization or a depreciation schedule. So you're not going to be made whole necessarily. You'll get some money, but you won't get the money you need to go buy another house somewhere else or rebuild your house. And on top of that, the insurance is expensive. It's very expensive. There are places in Long Island that I can tell you right now that are, are paying thousands of dollars a year in premium for this coverage. I'm assuming the homes in, on the island, in Long Island, are very expensive, and that's probably why the insurance is so much. Yeah, exactly, because a lot of it is based on the value of the home as well. But you'd be surprised. Some of the values of homes in the Gulf region, some of those areas are lower income and they, the, the home values, but the insurance is, is very high. And if it's a low-income area, it's um, I think it's a little foolish to expect these people to be able to afford their insurance premiums. So there's usually not enough money in the flood insurance program to compensate everybody that's involved. And so it's kind of, like I said, it's in this kind of vicious cycle where there's just not enough capital to keep refreshing to pay out all the losses. For years, people have been arguing that uh, there shouldn't be all this development on the on the coasts, and especially on the barrier islands. And, and while policymakers have problems making those kinds of decisions, uh, it looks like insurance makes the decisions for people. That's exactly right. And I think it's I think it's an interesting interplay between when the federal government tries to do something, but the, but the private market, uh, the private industry can start to inform people's decisions around there. I mean, again, if the insurance is so exorbitant to live in some of these areas, maybe you try to seek alternative housing somewhere else. You know, maybe maybe the free market can work its way out that way. But sometimes people live in those areas because th that housing is super affordable and the price of the insurance they can bear because obviously their mortgage isn't going to be that much. So it is, it's a difficult situation. And I don't know if insurance of the government um, have all the answers necessarily. Peter, with, with, with Katrina and in Louisiana, there's all, you know, recent floods have been horrible. What, uh, what should business owners do in, in areas like that? I think that if you're a small business, make sure that you're purchasing business interruption coverage. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we had a lot of, a lot of business interruption claims are just now getting settled from Katrina because the forensic accounting and trying to determine what the loss should actually be uh, was in such contention and such argument. And it's interesting because a lot of places weren't damaged by Katrina. Not one drop of water touched them, maybe some rain, but they couldn't enter their building, their facility, or their business because of what's called civil authority. 
So the local government said, it's not safe yet. We haven't determined that the groundwater is safe. We haven't determined that the electrical has been safe. Some of the power lines may have been damaged. But you can't enter your building. And it's sort of an unforeseen circumstance when people say, well, I can, I can literally see my business. It, it, I, I just need to go open it up. And, and the government says, you can't. Not right now. We haven't cleared the area yet. That's a business interruption claim. You know, you can't access your business because of a weather-related event. The other important thing, especially when we're talking about Louisiana, is if you can afford it and, and, and if you've been purchasing, make sure you have flood insurance because a lot of insurers, um, I know that a lot of private insurers, private market insurers and personal insurers, had this, had, they did not receive very good press after Katrina because they determined based on a water line in the house what was flood and what was windstorm. And that's important because flood is insured differently. Obviously, it's insured with the NFIP or if you have flood insurance at all. A lot of people don't carry flood insurance if they own their home because it's so expensive. And then everything above that waterline was considered windstorm, which is covered. So people were receiving checks for half the value of their house to settle. And it was, it was, a, very, it was a very bad situation. So make sure you're fully insured. Uh, make sure you're purchasing business interruption. That's the best advice I can give for those areas. Uh, on the, the example you gave about the water line, are you saying that, and I understand that, that flood is different from windstorm, the higher amount would have been the windstorm? Is that what you're saying? Or the lower amount? So it depends on where that line was and it depends on how big your house is. So let's say you have a split level house. Uh, depending on where the water line is, it could only be 50% of the house. Let's say you have a three-story house with a basement. Depending on where the water line is, uh, it may be half or you may, be, may have even only gotten a third of the value of your house because maybe the top floor was the only one that just sustained wind damage and the rest of it was flood. So you'd almost hope for the whole house being flooded and then you'd be covered, correct? Right. But remember, the coverage is actual cash value versus replacement. So the level of coverage may not be as good. So you almost wanted the windstorm to damage more of the house because you would get replacement value coverage. That's interesting too. <laughs> what happens with earthquakes? There's been some really bad earthquakes of late and not necessarily in the United States, but I mean, it devastates a whole town and gets wiped out. What happens? Is, I mean, how do they pick up that kind of a bill? Your whole life is ruined. Forget having a business in, the, in there. Your house is gone. Your, your family may be gone. Uh, your whole way of life is gone. What, uh, how do you insure for that? Yeah. Earthquakes, especially the ones recently in Italy are super devastating as well. And, and, in Italy, it was especially devastating because you've got you've got stonework and masonry and foundations that have been unreinforced and have been the same for 400 years. So you can only imagine that it's literally going to come apart like Legos if there's uh, major earth movement. Earthquake is insurable uh, in the United States. Uh, it's oftentimes not granted right away with your property coverage. What you do is you have it endorsed. And this is probably a good segue into a, a small discussion on endorsements. So when you endorse a policy, you're changing the wording. And you're either changing it for the better or you're changing it to take away some coverage. And in the case of earthquake, you can get an earthquake endorsement for your property policy. A lot of people obviously in California are purchasing this. Some people in New York even purchase it. We do have small earth movement in New York. It's, it's not dramatic or anything. But you want to make sure you have that because I think a lot of property insurers, when they uh, initially underwrite accounts, they just exclude earthquake because they don't want to think about it necessarily. They just want to issue the quote. And if you want, if you want earthquake, you have to ask for it. 
And Peter, what about fires? That's probably the only disaster that we haven't covered yet. Is there anything unique about fires? Yeah, absolutely. And, and fire when a fire strikes a single home in a residential area or a single family home or something like that, that is a classic fire example that's used to sell homeowners insurance. And it is. It, it's a tragedy, but it's an isolated event. I think when it comes to fire, a lot of people um, are beginning to realize now that we have an issue with wildfire in this country. So a wildfire doesn't just take out a few houses on the periphery of wherever the fire is and it gets contained. Wildfires can take out entire towns. We saw this in Canada, actually, this year already. Um, and I know that Hiscox was actually on uh, a lot of those. Uh, we're going to be paying on some of those losses up there. And wildfires are happening with increasing frequency. And um, part of the problem is it, a lot of it is forestry management. We have a lot of undergrowth that's not taken out. Um, so that just creates all this fuel. And then we have very irregular weather patterns right now. Again, uh, some scientists attribute this to climate change. But we have irregular weather patterns which will dry out these forests with periodic droughts, which create ripe conditions. So if you're in those areas, obviously your homeowner's insurance probably costs a fair amount of money. But it's probably good because fire is often a total loss. Fire is... I would say it's more rare that it's a partial loss where part of your house burns. Sometimes if you're in a uh, residential neighborhood with good fire response services, they can be contained and that's a partial loss. But when you're talking about a forest fire, we're talking about total loss most of the time. It's very sad. Is there anything unique if it's a, if lightning caused it or it doesn't matter? Uh, no. So the source of the fire, obviously it, it – it will be covered if, say, arson was involved, but the person who caused the arson won't be covered, obviously, for the criminal act. That they will be, you know, found, prosecuted, and so forth, or hopefully. But no, if it if it's lightning, uh, if it's caused by me uh, mechanical fire, it, or if it's just if it's caused by, say, electrical fire or something like that, fire is fire in, in many cases. Well, now you could have a uh, a small fire that creates a lot of smoke damage. And it, it, the loss could be mostly from smoke damage. Is that as effectively covered as the fire itself? It is. So you're right. Smoke can actually be devastating as well. It will stain items. It will uh, put a smell in them that just cannot be taken out. Um, sometimes people have to actually take out all of the drywall in their house. Uh, like even even a good heavy coat of paint won't even do it. They have to take out all the drywall in their house because of the smoke. And yes, the, the smoke from a fire is covered. What about um, these endorsements you're talking about? How does it affect the premium, and is it based on the kind of endorsement? Yeah, absolutely. So let's say you purchase an endorsement to increase the deductible on your policy, and you can do that midterm. Obviously, that endorsement would then give you some money back because you increase the amount of risk you're taking on. But let's say you're adding an earthquake and you own a business in San Francisco. Okay, that's probably going to have some additional premium associated with it. And um, that will be obviously rated based on how much insurance you're purchasing and the value of what you're insuring. Peter, as we wrap up this discussion on insurance-related disasters and emergencies, is there anything that you would want to make sure that we walk away from uh, in, in the top of our minds? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to disasters, uh, know that sometimes the actual damage from a disaster may not be bad, but you might lose your ability to actually work in a particular space, uh, whether it's a, a WeWork or a, a Regis space or your home or something like that. Disasters can often remove your ability to be there, whether it be from civil authority um, or whether there's some obstruction. So business interruption is an absolute must. 
Um, I highly encourage small businesses to consider the purchase of that unless you are abundantly confident that you can operate your entire business off of a laptop and a Starbucks, which I don't necessarily recommend per se either. Um, and the other thing to uh, uh, note too that there is insurance available for really bad things that might not be insurable in some cases. You can get flood insurance. You can get uh, terrorism insurance. It may not be the cheapest thing in the world, but um, it is it, it, it is a lot better than the cold comfort of not being insured in those losses. Peter, is there any uh, advantage to developing a relationship with your insurance agent so when these things happen, maybe maybe there's a queue of a 1,000 people in line to get an insurance claim filed? Uh, maybe you're not going to admit to this, but it, are there relationships that, that would help to take precedence if, if you're in a, a claim situation? Yeah, absolutely. And um, even more so than having an insurance agent, it, it, it's important to have uh, a nationally recognized insurance brand that is going to be able to handle that capacity of claims. So um, that's one of the reasons we developed Hiscox.com. Uh, you can report claims there. There's an 800 number. You can fax. You can email. We have several avenues for people to be able to report their insurance. And that that's part of the value at, that we bring as an insurance company is our availability in those times of disaster. A lot of national insurance companies are very good about staffing up in the middle of disasters. Um, I have seen several insurance companies, uh, especially with what's happening in Louisiana, they literally pull adjusters. Um, off their jobs in the the Northwest and the Midwest and in the Northeast, and they send them all down to the South to start handling claims. So they're very good about allocating resources. Um, and again, uh, his Cox, we try to open up every avenue for reporting of claims. Well, Peter, thank you for enlightening our listeners today on emergencies and disasters. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, guys. Thanks, Peter. You've been listening to the SCORE Small Business Success Podcast, Been There, Done That. The opinions of the hosts and guests are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of SCORE. If you would like to hear more podcasts, get a free mentor, view a transcript of this podcast, or would like more information about the services we provide, you can call SCORE at 800-634-0245 or visit our website at www.score.org. Again, that's 800-634-0245 or visit the website at www.score.org.